Hi there. Welcome. And uh, let's see. Just wanted to note that um, as I've been announcing the last couple of classes, uh, we, for the first time in, I guess, three years, by the time it happens, we'll be able to have a in-person retreat, residential retreat, upstate New York, very easy to get to. That will be over Labor Day. The best way to get information is just to check Dharma Punks with an X NYC.com. It'll also, the registration, of course, will be on the Garrison Institute page. Garrison Institute is a really beautiful retreat center, uh, wonderful food and amazing grounds to walk uh, right on the Hudson, really scenic views and a beautiful, beautiful, huge space to practice. And that time of year also, it's warm enough that we can do uh, walking meditations outside and we can do some of our uh, talks and stuff outdoors. So I hope you'll consider that and also working on the possibility of having some more in-person uh, Sunday afternoon classes. And as soon as they become available, announce that as well. If you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, teacher, uh, everything I do is by donation. And the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. Or you can find the PayPal button on the podcast site. So thank you for your support. And tonight, doing a talk on living with, communicating, and at times simply surviving relationships with emotionally dysregulated individuals. And we'll be going over not just some strategies for these relationships, but also how to recognize uh, individuals that fall under uh, some of the cluster B disorder family. And also we'll talk about how to understand and, and even develop some empathetic cognitive framing, understanding how people can at times be so reactive, aggressive, unpleasant, sometimes even violent in understanding the underlying roots of disordered thinking and disordered behavior, we actually can then develop strategies to alleviate some of the conflicts that worsen these dynamics. So with all that, let's jump right in. In starting, I'd like just to remind us that all humans are at birth programmed to seek closeness and attention from our caregivers, especially at times of stress. Our very existence depends on the vital bond we have with caregivers and uh, a securely attached child that gets regular, reliable, consistent attention, compassion, appreciation, will come to believe that there's no parts of themselves that cannot be 
accepted and integrated into a healthy sense of themselves, and they'll be able to uh, have a very reliable, inclusive picture of who their caregivers are. Those with healthy parenting uh, have a sense of self that's consistent, and they begin to understand that their parents sometimes can be in good moods, sometimes not in good moods. Sometimes their parents can be attentive, sometimes not attentive, but that doesn't, one, mean there's anything wrong or unlovable about me. Uh, and two, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong about them. It's just part of the human behavioral vocabulary that people sometimes are attentive and sometimes not. Sometimes people are relaxed and pleasant. Sometimes people are stressed. But if the caregiving is reliable enough, um, the positive and negative qualities of a parent can coexist in the mind of the child and without too much anxiety or vulnerability, without feeling that at any moment the care could evaporate. Um, and so children who have basically healthy attachments or healthy enough, when their parents are or their loved ones are not available or not in a good mood, it doesn't erase all of the previous experiences. This is not the case with emotionally dysregulated individuals. People who grow up with caregivers who are extremely inconsistent, sometimes kind, but other times shaming, rejecting, uh, uh, sometimes these parents can be utterly frightening. Their emotions can become so dysregulated, so over the top, so scary to the infant, that the child can find it impossible to reconcile these different attributes into a single idea of the parent. That's important to understand. This is known as splitting. And splitting is the underlying root of all or most, I should say, uh, emotional dysregulation that's chronic in individuals. If we cannot have a single conceptual uh, picture or idea of our parents it, or the people in our original family system, we may, one, fail to develop a healthy sense of self. The times where we feel rejected, unlovable, can be excruciating, and uh, it can be, it can feel like the end of the world to the child. So children who grow up in some forms of abusive uh, family dynamics um, cannot allow the 
good parent, the time that their parents are attentive and at least available and not scary, to be uh, in any way overlapping with the time the parent is scary, shaming, rejective, uh, rejecting, abusive. They have to keep these two qualities or these two ideas separate entirely. They cannot exist in the same figure at the same time. So in splitting, the child literally begins to emotionally conceive of the parent as having two completely different uh, uh, identities or two completely uh, separate essences. And uh, the child must at all costs protect its sense of being lovable by uh, trying to avoid, get rid of, push away the bad present, but the bad parent, the bad person. They switch between what's called idealizing and devaluing, devaluing behaviors. Um, they use these two conceptions of the good parent who's for me and the bad parent who's against me to reduce or alleviate the feelings of unease and pain they would experience, the child would experience if they allowed the idea that at any moment my parent might switch from being kind to being abusive or violent. It's a defense mechanism, in other words. It allows the child to feel safe while the parent is attentive. Because if the child allowed the fact that the parent has both these kind and attentive uh, uh, demeanors, but also dispositions that are scary, frightening, shaming, rejecting, uh, the child would never be able to relax. So in keeping the two, the parents split into two conceptual identities or, or figures, the child can relax or at least feel somewhat safe when it's with the good parent. Of course, what happens is this splitting turns into what is known as black and white thinking. Eventually, it filters how the child, as it grows up, conceives of everybody else in their life. They're either good or bad, for me or against me. But any complexities, any shades of gray cannot be tolerated. The other person has to be fully doing what they want or always attentive to them, or they get cast into the role of the bad, the, uh, uh, the must be gotten rid of. So the, this type of black or white thinking especially tends to be projected onto important figures 
as the child grows up to be an adult, other family members, close friends, romantic partners, uh, supervisors, or employees will be viewed through this filter of you are either entirely for me or you're against me. You cannot be both. In, as a result, when the uh, child who experiences splitting grows up, they fall into rather extreme polarizing behaviors. At first, when they meet someone new, they very quickly idolize. They'll idolize a new therapist, a new friend. They'll idolize a new employee you're the best you're the one we've been waiting for forever they'll idolize a new romantic partner i've been waiting for you you know you're the one they'll make impulsive commitments because they're only seeing the person through this filter of entirely good on my side a rescuer a hero and so on but then just as hastily the moment after they have an invitation turned down, or they're not invited to a social gathering, or a plan has to be canceled, or they they don't receive a reply to a message in a time, in a fashion, they, in a timely manner, that they will flip their entire conception of this new person no longer idolized, no longer their only friend, no longer uh, good and valuable. Now, this uh, person is seen as entirely worthless, must be punished to get rid of all of the, the feelings of this person is now going to harm me and all the unresolved anger from childhood that couldn't be expressed towards the original dysregulated parent is deflected onto the new person. Might be their child, might be their best friend, might be their business colleague, might be uh, you know, a new uh, romantic partner, but all of the old anger that they couldn't express to their parent comes flooding out. And in this desire to get rid of all the bad figures for good. Uh, the emotionally dysregulated, dysregulated individual must bring anyone who's perceived as against them down to a level of worthlessness to make sure they never reappear. It's an attempt to uh, expunge or, or dispel all of the painful feelings of rejection, abandonment, abuse they received in childhood. They're now trying, without being aware of it, trying to dislodge it onto somebody new in their life, someone who's made a simple uh, not returned message when they wanted, or someone who simply couldn't do them a favor, or someone who simply didn't check in with them when they expected. Now, as we go on, I, sh I, I do want to say that <clears throat> while a lot of 
the people who meet these characteristics are fall under the category of what's called cluster B disorders, specifically those with borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, diagnose, diagnosing, of course, should only be done by a professional, and it should never be done in referring or in conversation with another. So even if you fully believe that your brother or mother or uh, aunt or uh, cousin is borderline or narcissistic, I would counsel never using or pathologizing in that sense, uh, one, it will only lead to a greater confrontation. Uh, <clears throat> and um, two, in my work in counseling, which I've been doing for 18 years, 17, 18 years, I never myself, even though over the years, I've become pretty capable of spotting uh, the symptoms, I still, when I suspect it, will never diagnose the person myself. I'll simply uh, make it clear that uh, it's important for me that they consult with a psychiatrist uh, because I don't want to myself engage in the diagnosis. At least I try not to. Uh, I never will confront someone with it. Sometimes when people describe relationships with parents that sound from their description or with loved ones that sound very borderline or narcissistic to me, I'll say, that sounds pretty borderline. You might want to uh, suggest uh, or you might want to just read about it and see what see if it resonates with you. Um, so that said, um, the emotionally dysregulated have dramatic, unstable patterns of intoxicating obsession with new people followed by inappropriate, intense anger. They can become very sarcastic, very critical, out of the blue. They're prone to intense jealousy and accusations of betrayal or being used. They're not above throwing things, breaking things. They'll accuse other people of doing things that have never occurred. And they are always capable of pitting other people against the target of their rage. There was in uh, somebody I knew uh, through friends, a person who serially dated uh, new individuals in recovery. And this person would, uh, the first, it seems the first month would go great. There would be all this obsession and uh, this intensity to the relationship. And then invariably when the demands for attention became too much for their new partner, the new partner would 
pull away. And then this person would, in the middle of the night, come bang on their doors, call the police on them, accuse them of all different kinds of offenses. One time this person accused their partner of dealing drugs and, and all these things. And uh, it's uh, just an example of how over the top uh, individuals can become when they feel rejected. In addition to a lack of regulation in responses to perceived slights, uh, people can, or especially people in cluster with cluster B disorders, uh, are known to have very compulsive behaviors ranging from substance abuse to try to regulate their own mood swings uh, or to to uh, reduce their own anxiety of abandonment. They are known to use a lot of alcohol, reckless driving, unsafe sex, spending sprees, binge eating, suddenly quitting good jobs, uh, cutting off people. And one of the telltale signs of virtually all cluster B disorders, especially narcissistic and borderline, is an inability to sustain many long-term friendships. They are always expecting uh, rejection, abandonment, and so they're always pushing other people away as a result. Um, in devaluing others, they feel less anxious and they don't ever have to look at the origins of their own distress. And uh, they invariably, when things go wrong, feel cheated, screwed with, not, you know, respected, and so on and so forth. What can be most uh, difficult is, one, uh, individuals that are emotionally dysregulated with their the people they are family members or relational partners children and so forth they can perform well outside of these attachment dynamics in other words with strangers they can seem harmless and friendly so i grew up with a narcissistic father who was also had uh bipolar disorder, which he, both he was diagnosed with regularly, uh, and the sudden abuse at times uh, could uh, be so scary. But when I'd invite friends over, they'd invariably leave saying, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Your dad seems like such a nice, friendly, laid back guy. And indeed, he was when other people would be there. He was only within the uh, the uh, stage of the family system itself that he would act in such uh, violent and scary ways that the police would be called and other things like that would occur. I'm fortunate in myself that growing up with such a, a parent, I had, on the other hand, a mother who was uh, emotionally very, very reliable, secure, 
attentive. And so I personally was spared winding up with the same kind of dysregulation that my dad wound up, who grew up in his own hellhole of a family system. Uh, another problem is that therapy is often impeded by the in working with emotionally dysregulated people uh, because the if the person is, for instance, borderline or narcissistic or has those characteristics, at first they'll see the therapist as a hero, as entirely good. But then the moment the therapist in any way uh, sets a boundary uh, or tries to, uh, they will now uh, switch and the therapist will be seen as manipulative, abusive, abandoning, just out for money. And uh, so they will constantly leave or abandon therapy after only a few sessions. And um, they will almost invariably become very angry with the therapist. Uh, so in psychology circles, for a long time, a borderline diagnosis was kind of, uh, for a while, like the kiss of death and that uh, therapists and psychologists didn't see much hope up until recent developments with dialectical behavioral therapy and mentalization-based strategies of Peter Fanaghi. There, for a long time, it was considered to be untreatable. Uh, no longer, but for a long time, therapists would just not take borderline patients. So um, unfortunately, finally, uh, borderline individuals and narcissists uh, also have similar oscillations in how they think of themselves. It's not just other people that they have these extreme mood swings, these dramatic roller coasters. They'll also experience black and white thinking when it comes to themselves. They'll either be better than others, always a victim, or they'll experience extreme shame and extreme sense of being worthlessness. And they will flip back and forth. And so their grandiosity at times is just a way to protect from the deeper feelings of being unlovable stemming from their own abandonments in childhood. So the result is that people in relationships with emotionally dysregulated people feel like they have to tiptoe around their loved ones. They fear setting them off. They'll feel like they're walking on eggshells. People who grow up with, uh, for instance, a father or mother who's borderline or narcissistic, the other parent will say, don't anger your father or don't anger your, your mother. You, you know, they'll encourage everyone in the family to not do anything that sets off the parent. If we're in a relationship with someone who is emotionally dysregulated over time, we'll feel like we can't win. Whatever we do or say will be twisted, used against us. We'll feel criticized and blamed for things that are entirely outside of our control. 
will feel accused of doing and saying things that we never did. And so as a result, it's very easy to fall into the, if we don't just become very meek and walk on eggshells and always try to, to never alarm or anger the dysregulated, and many people will just give up, block the, their uh, parent or, or family member or uh, uh, friend, just disconnect. And it's understandable because no one likes to be assaulted, abused, accused uh, of things that we've, we've never done. No one likes to themselves be consistently blocked and then unblocked on social media. Um, it can be very hard to find what in Buddhism we call that middle path of, on the one hand, not allowing ourselves to be mistreated, but also, and, and also not walking on eggshells all the time or tiptoeing around, but on the other hand, not rushing too quickly to disconnect. Finding that middle ground is about changing the dynamics so that uh, we can transform the relationship to a safer, healthier path. So what do we do? Well, uh, it's important to, I, I recommend this to everyone uh, I meet who has uh, either survived or are in active relationships with those who can be suddenly uh, rageaholics or uh, attacking to join a support group. Now there are support groups for uh, family members of individuals with borderline or narcissistic uh, disorders, but I would say that uh, in my experience, even more preferable would be to find an Al-Anon or an ACOA meeting. Now you might say, well, aren't Al-Anon or ACOA meetings, uh, ACOA means adult children of alcoholics, um, aren't those for people who are in relationship with alcoholics or uh, drug addicts? And while that was true at first, these days, um, one, uh, alcoholics and addicts present, <laughs> sadly, very, very similarly in their emotional dysregulation and wild dynamics to people with narcissistic or borderline disorders. They almost can be emotionally identical. Uh, so great is the uh, unpredictability and emotional extremes of indivi these individuals. Uh, and two, <clears throat> um, uh, being in Al-Anon or ACOA is especially helpful. It holds us accountable to setting boundaries to protect ourselves. It gives us support. It allows us a place to share and talk about the inappropriate behaviors we've experienced. And it's very helpful in strategizing how to set appropriate boundaries, which brings me to setting appropriate boundaries, which are one, being very clear with ourselves what 
behaviors we can't tolerate, such as being shouted at or being interrupted, being accused of being uh, unfaithful or uh, manipulating or whatever we've been accused of, <clears throat> being willing to cl state clearly what we cannot accept or tolerate and being willing for the time being to disconnect and state clearly that we'll reconnect only if our boundaries are acknowledged. Marsha Linehan, who's the founder of DBT, uh, has wonderful uh, workbooks for people who are actually uh, borderline. But uh, so she suggests when individuals are talking with uh, emotionally dysregulated individuals to use words like ineffective that are not judgmental. If you say to someone, um, stop being abusive or stop being uh, uh, shouting or stop being so uh, mean or whatever, it won't work. It'll just inflame. Uh, but if you use words like the way you're interrupting me right now is ineffective in that I'm simply going to hang up and I'll be willing to talk again when you don't interrupt. So we're simply, we're not referring to the shouting or the interrupting or the accusations we're not inflaming the situation. We're just simply repeating that it's ineffective and it won't work. Um, it's wonderful to talk or express to the individuals healthier ways of expressing their feelings. And as we'll see, it's really important to indicate that we care about what they're feeling, but at the same time, not agree with their accusations or facts. So I can, for example, no matter how extreme somebody's beliefs are, I can empathize with the feelings beneath those beliefs. Uh, I can, for example, while I'm a fully vaccinated and boosted individual, I can, if somebody's around me and they're, if they happen to be shouting that vaccines are evil or some plot, I can, without debating the truth of that, I can say, well, I can certainly understand that you're uh, concerned about it, that you feel not safe with it. And so I can, in other words, ratchet down the tension in the conversation. I'm not agreeing with their beliefs, uh, but I'm also empathizing with the feelings that are animating their beliefs. It's wonderful and really so uh, effective to send messages to the emotionally dysregulated individual when they're not acting out. And in these messages to express some kind of care and interest in them. This is a tactic that's so effective because uh, as Heinz Kohut, a great uh, psychologist who worked with narcissists throughout much of his career noted, 
that the way to work with emotionally dysregulated people is not to confront them or uh, wound up in a uh, you know, argument with them about all their mistaken accusations or, you know, you know, uh, defending ourselves, but to simply reward with attention um, the times when they are not engaging in their defense mechanisms. So dropping a line now and then just saying, wanted, wanted you to know I'm thinking about you, how's life going these days? you know, let me know what's going on, can go such a long way to preventing them from acting out. I've spent so many uh, years in counseling, working with a lot of uh, individuals who uh, have subsequently, after I've suggested they see a psychiatrist, have been diagnosed with BPD and narcissism. And uh, I've seen just how effective dropping a line now and then uh, in between sessions, just checking in on them can go. Uh, of course, emotionally dysregulated people are highly sensitive to feeling disliked, judged, criticized, disagreed with, shame is prominent. So it's so important, as I stated, to acknowledge the feelings, but don't agree with their fact statements. So if you, if I got a, a, a message saying, you're never helpful, you're always disrespected, I'm tired of being treated this way, what have you ever done for me? Nothing, you only care about yourself. I'm thankful, I've never gotten such a message, but if I did, I would respond with, it's clear that you're angry, that you don't feel seen. And I don't agree that I'm the source or the blame for these feelings, but I'm willing to listen if we can speak in a way that I don't find abusive or that I'm being shouted at. Um, in some uh, circles, they talk about what's called the BIF response. BIF stands for brief, informative, friendly, and firm. So brief means keep our message short and clear, leaving as little as possible for the dysregulated individual to react to. And it can be, I got your message. <laughs> I heard your, I received your text. Informative is just give straight information uh, without justifying or defending ourselves, It's, of course, none of their attacks are about us. It's about their inability to manage their emotions. So we might say, I'm willing to talk on such and such a day. Friendly, the F is friendly, which can be very hard to do when we've been attacked by somebody repeatedly. But we try to keep the hostilities from escalating. So we just say, trust, just try to be as pleasant, non-reactive as possible. But we, the final F of Biff is firm. We keep the message the same each time. So with some people I know they have to say to parents or to ex-partners or whatever, I'm willing to meet with you in counseling or therapy, or I'm willing to meet with you 
uh, with uh, someone I feel safe or I'm willing to meet with you not at your place, at a place where I can leave, uh, and so on and so forth. Keep the message repetitive, unyielding, and say something calmly that ends the conversation. So to do all of this, we need to build our tolerance for emotional conflicts. <clears throat> and so our meditation today is going to be a practice of allowing us to regulate our own emotions when we're with an individual who has a history of, as they say, flying off the handle, uh, going from one extreme to another. So we're going to be using both self-soothing tools and also in the second part, some creative visualizations to help us develop this skill for maintaining our calm when under fire. So thanks for listening. I hope that something in tonight's talk was interesting. And at this point, I welcome you to find a really comfortable seated position and uh, when you do, closing your eyes. So bringing the attention from any concerns about stuff you have to do in the future, letting go of the ideas I've discussed, or any unresolved events of the day, and just Connecting with the sensations, the internal sensations. One practice I do is a very simple version of a body scan. What I'll do is I'll start by clenching the toes and foot, uh, maybe the left or the right, whichever one and then I'll release, and then I'll just feel into the sensation of the muscles releasing with the in-breath, then I'll tighten the calf of the same leg. And then as I breathe out, I'll pay attention to the, the tingling and release of that area of the body, tightening the thigh as I breathe in and then as I breathe out, relaxing, releasing the tension, associating the out-breath, the exhalation with release and the in-breath with focused attention. 
you could even clench the buttock of the same side of the body and then release. And then starting with the next leg. Following the same clenching, tightening, squeezing with the in-breath and then with the out-breath, relaxing and just feeling into the sensations of ease that happen when we release those muscles. So keep working your way up the next leg, the other leg. Eventually we reach the abdomen and then as we breathe in, just expand the belly all the way out to its limits. And then as we breathe out, relax, soften the muscles. Moving up to the chest. As we breathe in, try to expand the chest outwards and as wide as possible. Then as we breathe out, relax, soften, release. As we breathe in, we can lift the shoulders up towards the ears. And as we breathe out, rotate them back and drop them as heavily as they can. And if you want, you can continue now moving down one arm, down to the hands, clenching and releasing, clenching with the in-breath, releasing with the out-breath. When you clench a hand, really tighten it. And then as you breathe out, really feel from the inside of the palm out to the fingers, the sensations of ease and warmth. And then if you like, continue with the other arm, starting from the top, the Muscles tightening and releasing down towards the forearm and down towards the palm and fingers, the hand. And then as we breathe in, tighten the muscles either in the back or the front of the throat, whatever feels appropriate. And then as you breathe out, out breaths as long and soothing and smooth as possible, not forcing the air out and just 
as you do that, slowly relax the muscles in that area of the body. And then clenching, tightening the muscles of the face into a really pinched expression, the forehead furrowed, the nose squinched, the jaw locked. And then as we breathe out, just relax all the musculature. And you can also, if you want, breathe into the eyes, just tightening those micro muscles around the eyes. And then as we breathe out, really relax, allow the eyes to float in the eye sockets like they're warm pools of water. And finally, just bring our attention to wherever the breath is most apparent, the tip of the nose or the belly or the chest, and just try to incline the breath as the Buddha taught in the Anapanasati to the most comfortable, soothing breath, not just for the body, but also for the mind. What kind of breath is most relaxing? For me, it's a very slow, complete in-breath, and then a very slow, unforced release. The escalation, exhalation being as soothing as possible. So for a while, we'll just sit quietly and while you keep the breath as an anchor to bring your attention back every time your thoughts snag your attention and you wander off from the present moment, if you like, you can become aware of all the sounds around you or the sensations of contact with the uh, chair or couch or bed or floor that you're sitting on. You can always ask yourself, how can I relax more in this moment? So allowing your mind to take in all that is present is fine. Allowing your mind to, if it needs to think, think about how right now in this moment you could be more comfortable, what could relax you even further. Just sit here in quiet for a while. Just 
resting in presence.
So for the second part of the meditation, I'd like to invite you to start this practice by visualizing a relaxing scene, a place that you like to go to where you feel secure, at ease, where you can really unwind, someplace not rare, someplace that's available or at least some form of refuge from the stresses of life. And as we do this practice, just have this image available in mind. Keeping the belly as soft as we can and the shoulders dropped, released the muscles in the face, unclenched or tight, especially the brow, trying to keep an even expression on the mouth. And then bring to mind the individual in our life that has a tendency towards rage, sudden, abusive or critical remarks, accusations, and as you visualize this person, try to keep the your body is relaxed. When our body becomes reflexively tight and contracted, then there's very little discomfort that we can handle. But if our body is relaxed, we have a safe container to feel and be with unpleasant individuals without responding in kind, without being sucked into a screaming match or hurling accusations back and forth. It's so common that people, there's road rage incidents because drivers struck in traffic and roads very often carry a lot of ambient tension already before they get into an unpleasant fender bender or whatever. And then all of that tension makes it impossible for them to hold any more distress. Likewise, when we're interacting with a family member, a friend, a colleague, somebody at work, someone who is prone to outbursts of unchecked hostility or highly reactive outbursts, 
the more we can keep the body relaxed, the more we'll respond in a very simple, straightforward, unemotional way. And then remembering to find the emotion or feelings beneath the statement, just in our mind practicing, I can see you're unhappy or scared or upset or disappointed. Keeping our bellies soft, our shoulders relaxed, our breath long, our face and muscles released. And then in our mind, stating our boundary. I'm willing to talk, but only if what? Only if there are no accusations, only if there are no shouting, only if I'm not interrupted whenever I speak, only if and then what will we do if our boundaries are transgressed? If this happens, I'll hang up and check back later when we can talk in a way that I find productive or talk in a way that's effective friendly, informative, firm, and brief.